Well, I've often joked that if I had it to do over again, that if I were to go back to school and pursue a different career, a different field of work, that I would want to go back and be a meteorologist. I'd want to be a weatherman. Because what other job on earth can you be wrong about as much as you're right and you still keep your job? Like maybe a, maybe a politician, but there's much less pressure when you're doing it as a meteorologist. I mean, how many times have you pulled out your phone or looked at the forecast for a vacation, right? And you begin planning the vacation and you plan for the proper clothes that you're going to need on the vacation and you get there and you are woefully unprepared because the forecast was wrong. Now, I realize that, that I am oversimplifying the, the reality of what a meteorologist does. I know that they have all sorts of science-y technical equipment that they're using that helps them to, to watch the patterns and to, to read the atmosphere. And they have to, have to study all of these, these historic patterns of what the weather has done in the past and what happens seasonally. I understand that they have tons of complex algorithms that, that give them the readouts that they're looking at and all kinds of boring math equations that guide their predictions. But it does seem that they are wrong about as often as they're right. Which does, again, uh, is an unfair assessment and does demonstrate my ignorance of what a meteorologist actually does. But I do confess that there have been times that I've wondered aloud if all of their fancy equipment, their academic training, and, and their understanding is any better than maybe the old sailor's method. I mean, who of, you, who of us has not looked outside at the sky and said the old adage, red sky at night, sailor delight, red so- sky in morning, sailors take warning, right? And even Jesus himself said, even you can look at the sky and read the patterns and know what the weather is going to do. While there is a vast difference in the level of accuracy between modern meteorology and reading the sky, I would like to submit that they both function in much the same way to a large degree. They both carefully observe the current climate, developing conditions, an understanding of previous patterns, and use all of that information available to them to formulate what will happen if things continue as they're trending. You see, a forecast is not, is not actually a firm prediction, right? It's not, it's not the weatherman or woman saying, this is absolutely 100% for sure what's going to happen. It's why they always have all of those percentage things on there, because there is a percentage of a chance that this is going to happen, and actually, that's actually only partially true. It's there's a percentage of a chance that this is going to happen in such and such a percentage of our viewership. It, it is this, and it's beyond that. It's what this is what will happen, provided nothing changes in the conditions. I was thinking about that this week as I was looking into the book of Isaiah, which is a big book full of prophecies. And, and we like to think of prophecy as being this situation where God says to his people, This is what will happen to you, full stop. That it is a firm prediction of an eventuality that will happen with 110% certainty because thus says the Lord. 
But have you ever noticed how many times there are conditions with prophecies? That the prophet says, thus says the Lord, and then lays out a prophecy of this is what will happen if the conditions and the climate and the culture remain the same. Much like a weather forecast, it's what will happen if nothing changes. If we continue on the pattern and the trajectory that we're on, warning, severe weather ahead. The prophecies often were contingent upon how the people of God responded to the word of the Lord. It wasn't an absolute certainty, but what would happen if they chose not to heed his warning? The book of Isaiah is widely considered one of the most rich and robust books of the Old Testament, particularly when it comes to prophecy. A good deal of our theology is rooted in what is stated in the book of Isaiah, which makes sense because it's a really big book dealing with a lot of circumstances. It's 66 chapters and dealing with a lot of the salvific work of God. It's a book full of prophecies and predictions. And it's really not an overwhelmingly positive book, prima facie, on the face of it. If we, if we were to run through it and look through all of the available information, though, there is underneath the surface a thread that goes through the entirety of the book. And that's the thread of God's grace and the hope and availability of God's great salvation. We're going to spend the next several uh, weeks looking at some of the, what we're going to call snapshots from, from Isaiah. We're not going to quite do this as we normally do a book study, because normally when we do a book study, we do it week by week by week, and we do a chapter or two at a time. If we were to do that, uh, you do the math, 66 books, that's somewhere in the neighborhood of five and a half years, and like... God himself might come back before we get to the end of that. So instead, what we're going to do is we're going to take some vignettes, some snapshots that will help us to, to summarize what the book of Isaiah is saying and to help us understand what God maybe has for our lives through it. Today, we're going to start with Isaiah chapter 1. So if you have a Bible, turn with me to there, to Isaiah chapter 1. Isaiah chapter 1 says this, the vision concerning Judah and Jerusalem that Isaiah, son of Amos, saw during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Hear me, you heavens, and listen, you earth, for the Lord has spoken. I reared children and brought them up, but they've rebelled against me. The ox knows its master, the, the donkey its owner's manger, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Woe to the sinful nation, a people whose guilt is great, a brood of evildoers, children given to corruption. They have forsaken the Lord. They have spurned the Holy One of Israel and turned their backs on him. Why should you be beaten anymore? Why do you persist in rebellion? Your whole head is injured, your whole heart afflicted. 
From the sole of your foot to the top of your head, there is no soundness, only wounds and welts and open sores, not cleansed or bandaged or soothed with olive oil. Your country is desolate. Your cities burned with fire. Your fields are being stripped by foreigners right before you, laid waste as when overthrown by strangers. Daughter Zion is left like a shelter in a vineyard, like a hut in a cucumber field, like a city under siege. Unless the Lord Almighty had left us some survivors, we would become like Sodom. We would become like Gomorrah. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Listen to the instruction of our God, you people of Gomorrah. The multitude of your sacrifices, what are they to me, says the Lord. I have more than enough of burnt offerings, of rams and the fat of fattened animals. I have no pleasure in the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. When you come to appear before me, who has asked this of you, this trampling of my courts? Stop bringing meaningless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me. New moons, Sabbaths, and convocations, I cannot bear your worthless assemblies. Your new moon feasts and your appointed festivals, I hate with all my being. They've become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands in prayers, I hide my eyes from you. Even when you offer many prayers, I am not listening. Your hands are full of blood. Wash, make yourselves clean, take your evil deeds out of my sight, stop doing wrong. Learn to do right, seek justice, defend the oppressed, take up the cause of the fatherless, plead the case of the widow. Come, let us settle the matter, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they shall be like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you will eat the good things of the land. But if you resist and rebel, you will be devoured by the sword, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. See how the faithful city has become a prostitute. She once was full of justice. Righteousness used to dwell in her, but now murderers. Your silver has become dross. Your choice wine is diluted with water. Your rulers are rebels, partners with thieves. They all love bribes and chase after gifts. They do not defend the cause of the fatherless, and the widow's case does not come before them. Therefore, the Lord Almighty, the Mighty One of Israel, declares, Ah, I will vent my wrath on my foes and avenge myself on my enemies. I will turn my hand against you. I will thoroughly purge away your dross and remove all your impurities. I will restore your leaders as in the days of old, your rulers as at the beginning. Afterward, you will be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city. Zion will be delivered with justice, her penitent ones with righteousness. But rebels and sinners will both be broken, and those who forsake the Lord will perish. You will be ashamed because of the sacred oaks which you have delighted in. You will be disgraced because of the gardens that you have chosen. You will be like an oak with fading leaves, like a garden without water. The mighty man will become tinder, and his work a spark. Both will burn together with no one to quench the fire. It's an encouraging first chapter, isn't it? 
You get in there and you start reading, reading this and, and you see this vision that begins with Isaiah. And this is kind of meant to be the preamble of Isaiah. Scholars say that Isaiah is actually broken into three books. You have the first five chapters that kind of constitute an introduction. And then you have three subsections that, that deal with different issues that the people are facing. And in and rea- and reality, one of the reasons why we don't want to do a full poll of this is that, that right there in the middle, you have a bunch of, of chapters that are the prophecy against, the prophecy against, the prophecy against, the prophecy against. And it would just be hard to, to differentiate between all of these. But here we have this, this beginning, this layout of what's coming. And you have, you have a bunch of the judgment of God, but in the middle you have this spark of hope. And I think perhaps that's, that's what Isaiah wants us to take from this. That part of the value of Isaiah is revealing to us, much as it says in the book of James, where, where it talks about the Bible being a mirror that presents to us the reality of who we are and what we've done and the reality of what God expects of us so that we can see the truth of ourselves, we can see the issues, and we can adapt and adjust course to align ourselves with the truth of God's word. It's not just something we come to that's just supposed to be encouraging all the time. It is something that is supposed to challenge us, to reveal the truth, whether that be good or bad, and call us to repentance so that we can find the hope of God. That's the first thing that we see in Isaiah and one of the overarching themes. The first step towards salvation is seeing the problem or, as the case may be, the problems. I mean, you, you could go to any, any recovery group, and, and that's usually the first point. The, the premise of the underlying thought of the recovery group is you've got to admit there is an issue before you'll deal with it. It seems self-evident, doesn't it? I mean, if we don't see there being a problem in our lives, if we assume that everything is okay, if we assume that we're on the up and up, then, then there is no need for us to adapt and adjust. And that is actually one of the issues with, with society, and, and I'll speak specifically of American society because I read a, a recent research project. Did you know that they've done research and they actually went to a jail with maximum security prison and they, they surveyed all of these prisoners to see what they thought of themselves. And the, what the research revealed was that almost every prisoner believed that they were better morally on average than the rest of humanity. Maximum security prisoner. Everybody believed that they were better than everyone on the outside, with the exception of one area. They believed, these prisoners believed that they were not better than average, they were just average at following the law. Which is ironic, isn't it? Like the only area where they're like, well, you know, I may have an issue here, is following the law. Like, you are well below average. And we laugh about that, but here is the truth. That all of us, given the case, would probably assume to some degree we're at least average or better. Which is a logical fallacy. Average is the 50 percentile, right? Which means that only 50% of us can be better than average. Which means that half of us in the room are average or better. The other half of us are below average. I'm not going to do any judging of anyone in the room. But how many in the room think they're better than average on the top side of that? Anyone dare to raise their hand today? Yeah, I didn't think so. 
First step towards salvation is seeing and admitting that there's a problem. Text tells us that Isaiah has a vision. And that what we're going to read is the vision. The vision has several layers to it, even here at the beginning of the text. He sees the the heart and actions of the people of God and surrounding nations. I want for us to understand that very clearly as we're reading this text. Because one of our problems when we read texts like this that deal with national things and national themes is we want to apply it externally. We want to shine it out there that, sure, this is true of all of those people, but it's not necessarily true of us. Understand something, that the vast majority of Isaiah's prophecies, when he's talking about this national thing, he's focusing on the church. He's focusing on the people of God. So as we read the the confrontation that's happening here, particularly in chapter 1, he is talking about Not external nations. He's not talking about people that aren't part of God's family. He is talking about the people of God. Brothers and sisters, we need to assess ourselves as the people of God, as the church, and we need to be honest about who we are and where maybe we're missing the mark. If we don't, we will never adapt and adjust and become more like Jesus. That is the point of church. You do understand that, right? That when we come in here, the point isn't to celebrate how great we are. The point of coming together, whether it's at this church or any other church, is to recognize and to lift up how great God is and to recognize that you and I need to make adaptations, that we need to adjust, that we have not arrived yet. We come together to see how we need to change, not to lament how the world outside needs to change. Isaiah sees these problems within the people of God. He sees the holiness and the glory of God. He sees the impending wrath of God. And not just the impending wrath of God, because as Isaiah is writing these introductory chapters, the wrath of God has already begun to be poured out. But in the midst of everything, flowing through all of it is another theme. Isaiah sees the salvation of God. Pastor Nathan noted as he introed us into worship this morning, as we entered into worship, that Isaiah's very name is a declaration of the grace and mercy of God. His name means Yahweh is salvation. We might interpret it as the Lord saves, or or even better yet, our God saves. Kind of a funny name for a book about the destruction and devastation that comes from sin, isn't it? But it's a welcome reminder. Every time Isaiah would come and represent the voice of the Lord and declare the destruction, the very sound of his name would remind people, yes, God is holy, God is just, God is righteous, and God will come with wrath if we do not change. But Isaiah, God saves. God is salvation. We might say, going back to our initial illustration or introduction that Isaiah, the book of Isaiah is a, a forecast or a prediction. And Isaiah's prediction is this, divine judgment with a chance of salvation. Divine judgment with a chance of salvation. Isaiah ultimately as he brings us into this and as we look throughout the book sees the ultimate problem for all people. 
and the most grievous in God's people. And that problem is the problem of the S word, sin. Isaiah, here at the beginning, when we go into verse 2, he sets the scene of a courtroom. Hear me, you heavens, and listen, earth, for the Lord has spoken. In this beginning scene, God is setting himself up in a couple of ways. God, of course, is the judge, right? He's the the righteous, almighty judge, and he's about to, to render his judgment to assess the actions of his people and the surrounding nations. But God, in this instance, is not just the judge. He's also the plaintiff. And God is preparing to make his case. In keeping with his own standards found in his word in Deuteronomy, God calls two witnesses who continually have watched the failure of humanity unfold. His two witnesses are heaven and earth. Two trustworthy witnesses who have seen what people have done. In Deuteronomy 19.15, it says, A matter must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. Could there be any more reliable witnesses? Isaiah goes on to make a comparison via the word of the Lord. And his comparison is to that of an ox and a donkey. And if this wasn't obvious to you, it was intended as an insult. He, he, essentially, we might change the interpretation to, to be in more of a colloquial form. How stupid could you be? Like even, even these dumb animals, an ox and a donkey, animals that are classically, ridiculously stupid and stubborn beasts, even an ox and a donkey can recognize the hand that feeds them. Even an ox and a donkey understand how to follow the instructions of their master eventually. But you people, you keep rebelling. You keep going your own way. Even basic beasts can recognize the hand that feeds them and has the sense to come home. But my people, they have no understanding. They do not know. Verse 4 tells us that there is woe to the people of God, that their rebellion has led them down an alternate path that does not please the Lord, that they, quote, have great guilt. They're a brood of evildoers and given to corruption. You know, again, we like to talk about sin as if it's a problem for them out there. We like to talk about how wicked the world is around us. We like to lament the difficulty that we face of of a world that is doing what the world do. And because we as people of God believe ourselves redeemed by the grace of God, which is true, we believe ourselves, as I noted a moment ago, somehow better than. We're not as bad as the world around us, as if that is good enough. But the reality is that all of us struggle with sin. All of us have a need of a humble heart. All of us need to be consistently repentant, seeking to understand the reality of our faults and failures and turn back to God. If we want to see the world changed, if we want to see repentance in the world, then we first need to demonstrate repentance in the church. Ray Ortland writes, 
What hinders God's blessing in the world today is not Hollywood or Washington. What hinders God's blessing is his own children in rebellion against him. The reason we see so little repentance in the world is that the world sees so little repentance in the church. Isaiah's vision of Israel back then is just as relevant for the church today. It is our sin that should concern us most. It is our sin that we should be seeking to deal with first and foremost. When the Lord speaks, are we willing to hear? Are we willing to respond? Do we understand and know that God is talking about us and calling us to return into repentance? Isaiah goes on and he notes that sin carries serious consequences. Verses 5 through 6 and 7 through 9 are actually parallel statements. It's a dyad where Isaiah lays out an illustration of, of this is what it is like unto, and then he follows up by laying out this is what has actually happened to us. 5 through 6, Isaiah uses the metaphor of one who had been brutally punished by beating yet still refused to recognize the source of their struggle and seek help. Which is interesting because even in the midst of that, as, as, as Isaiah lays out this illustration, he's like, look, God still wants to help us. Like God, God's desire is to bandage and, and to heal our wounds, to bring about relief. But it's when we continue in, in our stubborn refusal to recognize and to continue on in our way that we continue to struggle. It describes a person suffering from the consequences of their own rebellion and sin. Verses 7 through 9, Isaiah explains his illustration that the suffering that Israel was currently experiencing was the result of God making good on his promise to punish his people if they continued wandering away from him. You know, I think about this quite often. Sin is something that is at best ignored and at worst celebrated in our world today. Now understand what I'm saying. I'm not saying that we need to ignore sin. That's not all what I'm saying. What I'm saying is in the, the general discourse of society, it is often at best that people just leave the topic at, alone. But, but the worst thing that happens is us celebrating and elevating wickedness as if it is good. Isaiah himself later warns about that. Tragically, this is even true in many of our churches. We have sacrificed our integrity on the altar of cultural relevance. We are more concerned with numbers in seats and big accounts and heavy and, and high quality production than we are actually changing the lives of people. And being the people of God. It causes us to often make compromises in our interpretation and presentation of the text of God's word. To stay away from certain subjects and to avoid even mentioning the, the concept of sin. And part of the problem is that in our modern economy, to challenge the actions or attitudes of a person has become equivalent to invalidating who the person is. 
To put another way, if I say that you are a sinner, I have somehow insulted you and done wrong by you. I have invalidated your identity. So, we often turn to God's word as a tool to confirm preferences and patterns of living. But turn a blind eye when scripture confronts or calls us to account. Might I suggest that scripture's ability to help us discern the truth of how life works and what God expects, even when it is difficult, is what makes the church eternally relevant. It is not our ability to adapt and adjust to modern trends and cultural situations. What makes scripture and maintains relevance is scripture is the fact that scripture does not change. And ultimately, it is our job as the church, it is our job as as pastors to come to the word of God and do our best to to read what it says and see how that overlays onto culture and change our lives in our culture rather than changing scripture in accordance with the constantly changing currents of culture. Scripture should determine the culture of Christians and the church, not culture determining our interpretation of scripture. It is our focus on trivial things like music, attire, and buildings instead of the transcendent word of God that is the source of our trouble and makes us irrelevant. Brothers and sisters, hell is real. And it is the ultimate consequence of sin. But we are subject to divine punishment and correction in the here and now. There are things that we face that are the consequences of our own failures. But there's hope. God's goal is not to destroy us, but to redirect us back into the fold and onto the path that God has prepared for us. But Isaiah points out that the first step towards salvation is seeing and recognizing the problem. Isaiah goes on, though, and he, he lays out the, a big problem within the people of God. And one of their problems is, is something that's important for us today, something that we need to remember, that offerings without obedience are insufficient. Offerings without obedience are insufficient. God is deeply offended by our sin, but more so by our efforts to manipulate him through acts of worship. Now, my deepest apologies to Karens everywhere. But the name Karen oh, in recent years has become somewhat of a pejorative. It's been used as an insult. My kids like to tell my, my mother-in-law when we're out, Grandma, Grammy, don't be a Karen, right? And, and, and what they're meaning is it's someone that's being condescending, judgmental, holier than thou. And the word actually doesn't come from the name Karen. Did you know that? The name Karen, that using that as a pejorative, actually comes from the fact that someone be Karen too much. They care too much about what's going on, things that are inconsequential or sex- secondary. To be called a Karen when it isn't your name is a con- condemnation. It's an insult 
meant to reflect the poor quality of your attitudes and actions. Again, my apologies to Karens. I, I have nothing but love for your name, and I apologize that culture has done you so wrong. I'm just pointing the realities, because that's important, because God uses some names that are likewise used in a pejorative sense in the Bible. There are very few things that God could have called the ancient people of God that would have been more insulting than the people of Sodom and Gomorrah. If we look at verse 10, Isaiah says, Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Listen to the instruction of our God, you people of Gomorrah. Can't think of a name that would have been more offensive to the people of God. Even today, the, the mention of these names conjures for us exceeding wickedness and the wrath of God. God literally burned them off the face of the planet for their sin and into the memory of human history. Now one must ask the question, though. What has Israel done? What is the great sin that they've committed that caused God to use such a name concerning his people? What is the source of this great insult that God lobs at his chosen people? We see it in verses 15, 11 through 15. And the issue isn't anything that we normally would think of. The issue is empty and hypocritical worship. It is honoring God with their lips Jumping through religious hoops, but then failing to live a righteous life in the aftermath. If we look at the verses, we see verse 11, the people were offering all the right sacrifices, and they were offering those sacrifices in abundance. They continued to bring things of value into the temple, rams and goats and all these fattened animals, and to, to burn incenses. They, they were doing all of these sacrificial things. Verse 12, they regularly attended worship services at the temple in mass. Verse 12, or verse 13, they continued to honor important religious holidays and celebrations. Verse 14, they postured and prayed to God. You know, all these things are things that we would consider good. They were, they were good religious people. They jumped through all the, the hoops of religiosity. They, they did all the things that would signal to God, remember that we're your people. Remember, God, that we are righteous. In a sense, they're doing this. They're reminding God, God, you owe us. Those, were, those acts of worship were, were less about reminding them of who God was and their need to change. It was more about reminding God of who they were and his need to adapt in accordance with their needs. And in each instance, God declares that their worship is unacceptable. It is undesirable. It is burdensome, offensive, and downright loathsome to God. He hates it. This is something that I come back to oftentimes in Scripture, something I can't escape, and I don't apologize for repeating it. It is quite possible for us to do all the right things and still be wrong. It is possible for us to jump through all the right hoops and, 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 and do all of these religious things and still miss the point. 
Maybe if we were to go back to the verses in, in 11 through 15 and, and add some overlay of contemporary issues, it's, it's possible, verse 11, for us to come and give our monies, our tithes to the church. Verse 12, it's, it's possible to sit in church and worship every Sunday and every Wednesday. Verse 13, it's possible to keep the Christ in Christmas and remember that Easter is ultimately about the crucified and risen Christ and not some bunny. Verse 14, it's possible for us to pray daily and without ceasing and still miss the point. And here's how we make, miss the point, when we make it all about us and we miss the greatness of God. We make it about our experience our encouragement, our comfort, our convenience. And our worship becomes more about calling God to do what we've asked him to do, to move the hand of God, rather than to allow the, the hand of God to make and mold us. God is so offended by such empty, self-centered worship that he rejects it and turns a deaf ear to it as if it was empty noise. Brothers and sisters, right action must flow from a right and humble heart or it's all wrong. God's not interested in us going through the motions. God isn't interested in watching us come into his church, into, into his house and play out some empty drama. God is interested in us coming together, getting into the truth of his word, hearing the reality of thus says the Lord, and adapting and adjusting our lives in accordance with what we hear. May we make no mistake, God's word is meant to change us. Not just to change the world around us, but to change you and I as the people of God. Repentance is at the heart of worship. And repentance requires a right heart and right action. And then results in right re restoration. Repentance requires a right heart and right action and results in restoration. Now we get into the hope. The Lord has laid out all these things. And in verses 16, in following, the Lord says this. He issues an invitation and an exhortation to return to right relationship and live as his child. See, I, I'm not saying that religion is bad. It's not. We make a mistake when we look at religion and we say that it is an issue. Religion is ultimately meant to bind us to God and to remind us of his goodness and his greatness, remind us of our need for him. It's to, to point us towards repentance and to help us adopt a posture of repentance and humility with God. Verses 16 through 17, God calls his people to seek both religious purity and right action. He says, wash and make yourselves clean. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. Verse 16 is about ritual purity. Verse 17, learn to do right. Seek justice. Defend the oppressed. And take up the cause of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow. I can't help but think of the great commandment in the New Testament. The first half of that is, is orienting ourselves towards God. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second flows out of it, love your neighbor as yourself. It's 
the offer of salvation is available to those who repent and return to the Lord. Verses 18 through 20. Come now, let us settle the matter. This, this is a reference back to the beginning, to, to verse 2 with the court case. God is not inviting his people to present their case to him. You understand that, right? That, that when we come to God in prayer, we are not to plead our innocence before the Lord. Instead, what God is doing there, some of your versions might actually read, come let us reason together. God is not inviting us to, to ra- give the rationale of our action. To use the court analogy, what God is more accurately doing is saying, hey, let's settle out of court. Let's settle this case. I'm offering you a plea deal. I will remove your guilt from you if you'll admit it. Admit your faults and your failure and lean into my grace. I will make you white as snow. Though your sins be as scarlet and clearly apparent, I will make you like wool, though your sins are like crimson. Repentance and obedience will result in blessing. To return to our initial metaphor, the initial forecast could change. Provided we make the decision to respond to God appropriately. It's a very appropriate and, and poetic turn of phrase that is, is used here in verse 20. Verses 19 and 20. He says, if you are willing and obedient, you will eat the good things of the land. But if you resist and rebel, you will be devoured by the sword. We might translate that. It's either you're going to eat or you're going to be eaten. And which comes about is dependent upon your action. Will you continue to rebel or will you repent? Again, I can't help but go to a New Testament passage, which is quite appropriate given that it's Father's Day. This whole idea that we see here in chapter 1 brings to mind the idea of the prodigal son. Particularly here as we, we look in verses 16 to 20, we see a father that is waiting at home for a son that has wandered away and got himself filthy doing his own thing and wandering his own path. And the father continues to call out and saying, I'm at home. And all that has to happen is the, father has to re- the, the son has to recognize the worthlessness of their wandering and turn back to the father. And the father will welcome them with open arms. Restore them into the family. Again, Isaiah reminds us, Yahweh is salvation. God calls us to continued posture of repentance. Worship is not about reminding God that we are here and that we need him. He knows that. Worship is about reminding us of how great God is and reminding us of our great need for him. Of, of giving, worship is a chance to give us a, an opportunity to repent and seek restoration in God's family. We look at verses 21 through 31, we see that the vicious cycle of sin and salvation spins on. And that's what we're going to see continuing through the book. Isaiah essentially cycles right back to the beginning, calling out the unfaithfulness and unrighteousness of the people of God. Recognizing the resultant punishment, but also pointing out the corrective intent. Brothers and sisters, God's desire is not to do harm to us. God's desire is not to destroy his creation. 
but to call it back to himself. To make right what had gone wrong. Even God's punishment is an act of grace, seeking to purify us and lead us to repentance, to restoration, and to redemption. Isaiah provides us with the problem. He predicts potential outcomes, and he calls us to return to the path of righteousness. The question for us today is this. Will we pursue our own priorities? Will we walk our own path our own way? Or will we choose to adopt a posture of humility, of reflection, of repentance, and to pursue and live in the salvation and restoration that God so graciously continues to offer us. Isaiah reminds us that salvation is the Lord's, that our God saves. May we repent. May we seek God's guidance and direction and intervention in our lives that we might live out the truth of his word, that the world might see repentance in us and that we might make a difference in the world around us through his grace so freely offered. Father God, we thank you for your goodness and your grace. We thank you that though we sin time without number, though we fail you and wander far from the path that you have for us, that you offer us redemption, you offer us restoration through repentance. God, you are a merciful and loving Father, seeking to call your children back to yourselves, yourself. God, may, may we respond with humility today. May we evaluate our own lives and see the areas where we need to make adjustments. May we look into the mirror of your word and make adjustments as you reveal to us the truth of your holiness. God, we love you and thank you for your goodness and grace in our lives. Pray that you would help us to be messengers of your truth, conduits of your salvation and guides to bring people to a knowledge of your great love and compassionate grace in light of your holiness. God, continue to speak to us this morning in Jesus' name. Amen.